If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Grey Cup week in the hammer. Uh, things getting uh, starting to heat up. And then, of course, uh, by Thursday, Friday, Saturday, things uh, in full swing uh, as we get ready to uh, to host the Grey Cup on uh, Sunday. So I'm sure you are all watching uh, the Eastern semifinal. And, you know, uh, many were picking Argos and why not to, to obviously be in the Grey Cup. It was odd that I, I saw an article or heard something just last week that people were debating whether this was the best Marcos team in history. Clearly not. And um, you know what happened? They kind of pooped the bed over the weekend. And uh, it is what it is. But we thought last week this would be kind of cool because, you know, obviously uh, you're hosting a Grey Cup and you want your home team to be in it. And, and the worst thing other than that is having, of course, the Argos in it and the Ticats not. So we thought this would be a cool idea, you know, sort of a, a talk about a uh, an Argo suck mega party, which is happening at the Corktown on Friday. They were going to put a hex on uh, the team, all that sort of th- stuff, because they, you know, again, they thought they were... Argos were going to be in it. And, you know, it sounded like a cute idea. So we thought, you know, we'll get Lou Molinaro on. This will be fun. And then what happens? <laughs> well, uh, the Argos clearly suck because they're out. They, they they didn't even make it. So uh, the party goes on in true Lou form. And he's with us now, Lou Molinaro, instructor at Durham College and the Harris Institute of Music. And, boy, uh, you can take the music out of Lou, but you can't take Lou out of the music or vice versa. He is with us now. Lou, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Thanks so much for having me on your show. So clearly, just the threat of putting a hex on the Argo seemed to do the trick, Lou. That's all it took. It's so funny because when we were uh, planning on doing this, uh, first of all, B.A. Johnson, who's Hamilton-born, he's a Canadian singer-songwriter, uh, a very unique songwriter as well. He's kind of like, to me, the new Stop and Tom Connors. Uh, a lot of his uh, music is very folklore-like. His latest album is called Argos Suck. So it, it wasn't just uh, uh, a statement for this year. I mean, this is a forever statement because, as you know, <laughs> records never die. And he's the biggest Ticat supporter. And uh, it was very important for him to show his true colors. So because of the Grey Cup uh, being hosted in uh, Hamilton uh, this week, and um, BA a couple of months ago had contacted me and he said, let's do an Argos Suck party. And again, whether they make it or not, this is just a forever statement. So, of course, I'm all behind it because I love B.A. Johnson and I'm a Ticats fan. You can't like both. It's one or the other. So even though the Tyke, or even though the Argos are out of it, I think the spirit of this, uh, <laughs> you know, this statement must live on. Right. Clearly, again, just just the energy that this has created. I mean, you know, they're not even going to show up for the party. I mean, it, it's incredible when you think about it, uh, the power that this has. So talk about this night, because obviously uh, it's going to be a pretty wild weekend in the hammer and uh, stuff like this going on certainly helps. But talk a little bit about what's going on at the Corktown this Friday. So uh, the, the show's going to happen upstairs at the Corktown. Uh, B.A. Johnson is going to host it uh, with his special guests, Lee Reed and Moonlight Desires. Lee Reed is uh, an incredible hip-hop artist from Hamilton who's been doing this for a long time, and he's got a strong reputation and uh, uh, an incredible fan base. Moonlight Desires are a band that um, kind of take more of a heavy angle towards a lot of the 80s pop stuff. So uh, music from Gal and Corey Hart, Brian Adams, and they put their own twist to it and make it really, really special and unique. So anyone who's a fan of a lot of the 80s hits will really enjoy... Um, 
these songs that come out of this uh, meat grinder of theirs. And basically, it's like a pro Thai Cats party with the Argo Suck um, tag on it. <laughs> and now for the, 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 the purpose, uh, and I do want to clarify something here, with the purpose of putting the hex on, uh, you know, BA really just wanted to be dramatic about it by just having somebody put on a hex. By no means is he really into any sort of satanic (laughs) practices because, you know, the Johnson's family would not allow that whatsoever. A disclaimer that is well heard, Lou. Uh, So uh, so (laughs) Lou is not responsible for anybody that falls in any sort of trance over the course uh, of the night. Now, uh, is there a certain side you are going to cheer for or is this going to take, you know, one side or the other? Or is this just going to be a party all around in the hammer this weekend, you think? I think, first of all, it's going to be a party around uh, just embracing the fact that the Grey Cup is happening in Hamilton. It is a B.A. Johnson show, which also reflects a lot of support towards the Tiger Cats. But I think a lot of us would like to see the Grey Cup head east. It's been uh, a little bit... uh, hanging out a little bit too much in the west part of Canada, and it'd be nice yeah. to kind of have a travel to the east for a bit. And Montreal has nothing to lose. Uh, you know, they, yeah. they really have been playing incredibly well, and they certainly showed Toronto and Hamilton over the last couple of weekends. So do you think there's going to be more of a draw, Lou, that Toronto is out of it now from a Hamilton perspective? Yeah, well, I go to see that game. Yeah, that'll be a good game. I don't want to see the Argos, though. So I think just the fact that, like I said, it's sort of like a forever statement. It's really uh, gained a lot of a, a appeal. And just noticing names of people who have been buying tickets are people that uh, I'm not familiar with. And I've been doing this in Hamilton for so long. There's, yes, a lot of uh, mainstays of B.A. Johnson fans. But there's so many people, I think, that are buying tickets that are even um, – you know, they're from out of town. So I think it's gaining a lot of uh, attention from people who are visiting Hamilton. And this is going to be such an incredible party because B.A. Johnson is such a, a true iconic Hamiltonian. And like I said, his music is folklore-like, so they'll definitely enjoy the evening. All right. Uh, this Friday at the Corktown, Argo suck forever, not only this weekend, but, forever. but moving yeah. forward ever, forever. Uh, forever. Mega party. And, and you know, if the Argos were going to be in the Grey Cup, there was going to be, you know, a hex put on, but no need for that. Fun, fun and games will ensue. B.A. Johnson, Lou Reed, Moonlight Desires, Lou Molinero with us. And, of course, reminding you Friday uh, to be at the Corktown. Lou, as always, thanks for the time. Should be fun. Enjoy. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of your day, Scott. Have you heard this? The latest from the Beatles. <laughs> Called Now and Then. And um, everybody contributing to this of the Beatles, past and present, and, and AI uh, bringing it all together. Uh, what does this mean moving forward? Is it the last one? Let's bring in Alan Cross, host of the ongoing History of New Music, and is with us now. Alan, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. We're, uh, we're doing okay here, yes. What are your thoughts on this, Alan? Is this another free as a bird? Uh, you know, after we heard it, it was, oh, another one, and then, oh, maybe it should have stayed in the vault. What are your thoughts on this one? And, and give us the backstory, because this is, well, this is a created, a created hit, really. Well, it is and it isn't. Um, I, okay, let's be honest. Is this an all time great Beatles song? No. It, would this be an album track someplace? Probably, maybe on Let It Be, or maybe on our John Lennon Silver record. Um, it's uh, it's 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 not the best of the best of the Beatles. Let's be honest. But I will mm-hmm. tell you this: first of all, you have to give it more than one listen. If you give it 
four or five or six, then certain things begin to fall into place. The John Lennon vocals, the uh, Beatles harmonies, the George Harrison slide guitar solo. Um, and then you begin to, to get a, a, a feeling for it. And, you know, it's not bad. And it's certainly nice. I The best thing I saw written about this is that, look, this is an unexpected gift. Open it up, smile, and say thank you. Um, it's, you know, how far do you want to go into the to the background of this? Talk about how they've all contributed and when this song was actually created initially. Okay, 1978, John Lennon is sitting at a piano at the Dakota, and he's recording this song now and then into a uh, boombox with a cassette. Uh, this cassette hangs around for a little while. Uh, it's given to Yoko. Yoko gives it to Paul after John is dead. And Yoko says, I think, Paul, I think John would have liked you to have this. So 1995, the three remaining Beatles are working on the anthology uh, collection, which gave us a couple of songs, one of which you mentioned, Free as a Bird. They tried to rework this song into something usable, but they could not because there was a lot of electromagnetic interference there was a buzz on the tape. The piano couldn't be heard that well. And John Lennon, John's uh, vocals were about as what you would expect, record into a boombox in the middle of a big drafty apartment. So they tried to do something with it. They could not. Fast forward uh, about 20 years, and or longer than that, 25 years, and uh, we have Peter Jackson doing the uh, Get Back documentary. Now, the audio for that documentary was originally recorded on a mono Negra tape machine. What Peter Jackson was able to do using artificial intelligence is take that mono signal and separate it into multiple channels, clean it all up, and bring it up to 21st century audio standards. Paul McCartney heard the results and said, look, I got this tape from John there is this song in here we'd like to do something with, but we can't because there's too much interference and the audio quality isn't very good. Can you do something with it? So Peter Jackson performed his artificial intelligence magic, managed to isolate John's uh, vocals from this, uh, brought it up to 21st century audio standards. They went back to the sessions from 1970, uh, 1995, brought out George's bits. Uh, Paul and Ringo put some new stuff mm. on it. Paul uh, put some strings on it. And this is what we have. So basically, it is all four Beatles playing together, even though they are separated by time, space, and death. Um, there is nothing artificial intelligence generated here. Artificial mm. intelligence was used to uh, do nothing more. Well, that doesn't sound good. Well, do nothing more, I'll say it that way, than, than bring John's vocals. Uh, and it is John up to snuff. And this is what we have. What a lot of people are forgetting is that the Beatles recorded somewhere around 245, 250 songs. And those songs are have been locked into our collective consciousness for 60 years. We know what they sound like. We know what they feel like. And most of them were recorded on two, three, four-track mono machines. The Beatles did not go to multi-track recording in a stereo way until... Um, they got to uh, the Abbey Road album. So this is the first Beatles song to actually be uh, produced using a digital audio workstation, uh, something like Pro Tools. So yeah, you know what? It's going to sound a lot more slick than Beatles songs we remember. Again, this is all solid state. It's all done uh, with, with a lot of computers and, 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 uh, and, and uh, digital um, processing. 
not on a bunch of old machines that were powered by vacuum tubes. So it is going to sound different. Um, it is it is truly amazing that they were able to do this, separate his vocal, and then literally create another Beatles song around this. Because theoretically, this is not a Beatles song. This was done after the fact, was it not? It was done after the fact, after the Beatles broke up. Maybe John was thinking about using this on a solo record. But again, Yoko gave the tape to John or to mm. Paul saying that I think John would like you to have this. And Paul thinks maybe consults with Ringo and back in 1995 would have consulted with George. Should we do this? And the thinking was, well, yeah, I think it's something that John would appreciate. Remember that John Lennon was hugely, hugely into studio experimentation. Um, think about songs like Tomorrow Never Knows or Revolution 9 or you know any number of songs that were using at that time state-of-the-art studio magic and trickery to create something that could not be heard in the real world. This is just a continuation of that. Is the, the timing of this, now we know, again, this dates back to uh, the dock and so on and so forth. So it's all, you know, it's kind of a story that has unfolded. Do you think this stands out now considering where the world is? Timing. I, you know what? It, it was cool to see both the Rolling Stones and the Beatles battle for number one supremacy on the UK charts. I mean, that was <laughs> fun. Um, is this going to become an all-time Beatles favorite? Probably not. But like I said, it's a gift. Uh, this is something that every one of us never expected to hear in our lifetime. A new Beatles song with all four Beatles on it. Pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And the technology that made it possible is pretty cool. Is this the last thing that we'll see from the Beatles? Well, they say it is. I wouldn't count on it. But this is a, certainly an excellent proof of concept. What what I find fascinating is that it's people are very polarized by this. By this. They either really, really love it and they're driven to tears or... They think that this is a travesty and they should have just left well enough alone. Um, not a lot of middle ground here. So you pick your side, stick with it. But if you are a Beatles fan and you do appreciate this, you know, please enjoy it. Why not? What's what's it going to hurt? All it really has done is, is, is separated the tracks that were already there and given uh, the platform, presented the platform that they've been able to do this. I, you know, I, I don't think it's, it's stretched from an AI standpoint, like you're sampling somebody's voice and then writing a song for them. No, no, this is John. This is John singing. And this is not John recreated in any way. It's simply yeah. John cleaned up from a cassette. That he made and, himself in his apartment so, at the piano. How many cassettes must there be? If you can do this with something uh, on a piano and a boombox, uh, what else? What's the future hold? I mean, is there, there must be a lot of cassette tapes lying around. Well, and not just for the Beatles, but for so many other people. Now, let's, let's yeah. just go back. Uh, you know, Jimi Hendrix, for example. Jimi released, what, three albums while he was alive? How many albums have come out since he was dead? Something like 40? Now, can you imagine that uh, if, if those 40 albums had been subjected to the same sort of technological upgrades, how much better they would sound? Ooh, that's pretty cool. What do the Rolling Stones have in the vaults from, let's say, yeah. the Exile on Main Street sessions? Ooh, I'm interested in that. Um, what about, uh, you know, somebody like, um, I don't know, a Bon Scott era ACDC? Is there something there that, that can be... 
uh, salvaged and turned into something. You know, the mind boggles at the possibilities. Now, just because we can do it doesn't mean we should. However, um, there could be real cases to be made for some serious audio archaeology uh, to allow the public, allow fans to hear songs that would have otherwise been lost forever. Alan Cross with us, host of the ongoing history of new music, uh, including a new Beatles song, Now and Then, uh, which is getting a pretty good response. Alan, as always, thanks for the time. Fascinating stuff. Be well. We'll see you later. All right. We've, we've talked about this before. And, um, you know, some cities not here or some uh, jurisdictions, um, they make you stop on a red light and you cannot make a right turn. Others, you can make a right turn, but only after you come to a complete stop. And, and the issue has been brought up. Well, we should ban right hand turns on a red light. Um, because people aren't stopping. Um, so is the answer to ban the right-hand turn on a red light or just try to get people to stop at the red light? And if they're not stopping at a red light, who's to say if you ban a right-hand turn, whether they're going to not make the right-hand turn anyway? Uh, so it's, it's one of those discussions. And again, it does keep traffic moving. It uh, relieves congestion. But if you're not stopping on the red, it sort of defeats the purpose. Let's bring in Angelo DiCicco, general manager with the Ontario Safety League and here now. Angelo, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am very well. And hopefully all your listeners are too. So where are we with uh, this, Angelo? Uh, in Ontario, obviously, you can make a right-hand turn on a red light. I guess some provinces you can. I don't think you can in Quebec, for example. Correct. Or more specifically, Montreal. Right. And uh, the the reality is that a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, 35 years ago, I was involved in driver training. And you could make a right-hand turn on a red light if you came to a complete and utter stop before the white line, Mm -hmm. you check left, center, right. And if you're wise and intelligent, you did a right hand blind spot check for a cyclist or a pedestrian. And then you continued on in the vast majority of places in North America. That's okay. And in Ontario specifically, that's okay to do in the fashion I described unless it's prohibited by a sign saying that you cannot make a right-hand turn on a red light ever, or you cannot make a right-hand turn at a red light at that intersection between certain specific times of days Mm -hmm. and specific days of the week. Really, for most of us, that hasn't changed at all. So is this needed then? Uh, At the end of the day, if you're going to stop, you're going to stop. If you're not, you're not. Yeah. And so I think what you're getting at is a degree of public awareness to refresh people's minds who got their license 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. Or to those who are newer to this province and have a license that was exchanged due to reciprocity with other jurisdictions, or those who have come from somewhere else where it was or wasn't allowed, and during their road test, that scenario didn't come up. So 
There is the refreshing of people's memories because they all read the driver's handbook and have attested that they would follow those rules and regulations, or they just were never aware of it at all. And so it's enforcement. We really need education, but education without enforcement isn't really good education. Now, you have to wonder, uh, Angelo, if we were decided to, okay, make it illegal to make a right-hand turn on a red light, there's a certain amount of education involved there. Uh, if we perhaps just educated people on doing it the right way and, and stopping before you make a right-hand turn, would that not be the same sort of amount of education, if not more? So would yeah. it make, do these education, will these education campaigns work? Do they work? Well, I believe they work very successfully for those of you who are tuned in. And thank you for doing that today because you're doing something, I don't know, for Scott, CHML, me, but for the public at large, in that this is the type of discussion around the dinner table or when you're carpooling. But the reality is that first, you should be aware of the rules of the road especially in the province of Ontario under the Highway Traffic Act. And if you're driving on a public roadway, you must adhere to those rules because they're like the law and stuff like that. And if you're breaking the law, then there should be consequences. And be it because you didn't feel like coming to a complete stop <laughs> or you've just seen so many people at that particular intersection slow down look and continue to go without coming to a complete stop that now that's your habit along with the 20 people before you and the 20 drivers behind you that's become your habit that doesn't make it legal and it definitely doesn't make it safe especially if there's an electric vehicle uh, coming up at 20 or 30 kilometers an hour on the sidewalk or in the share the share lane between you and the right-hand curb so you must come to complete stop at the designated place which is normally the big fat white line because that's why they painted it there. However, in a few more weeks or months, there's going to be snow and you can't see the white lines, but you can see the edge of the crosswalk. The furthermost portion of your vehicle, the nose of your vehicle, should not cross over the prolongation of the crosswalk to crosswalk. So normally where the thin white line is, so people can pass. So the front of your car, not your wheels, and you must come to complete stop. And most people know that if there's traffic, they're going to stop. So why not stop at the legal place, which is before the crosswalk, rather than as you get into the intersection where you can see better? So again, is a bit of the rules of the road and your your disposition to follow the rules as safely as proactively as possible, which is slow down and stop before the legal stopping position. Then Angela. from there, you scan left, center, right. If you see pedestrians or other vehicles, you shall yield the right of way because your light is uh, red. And when your <laughs> light is red, that means stop. And that means you don't have the right of way. 
You only get to assume the right of way should no one else be using that intersection at that time, be it a cyclist, a pedestrian, or vehicles traveling the other way. I know I'm and? being jokingly facetious. No, or ironic. No, I don't even know the meaning of facetious or ironic. That is actually, the, that's the law. Angelo DeChico with us, General Manager, Ontario Safety League. Do uh, we need to uh, a law to stop us from turning on red lights or just stop at the red or the stop sign for that matter? Uh, Angelo, thanks for the time. Be well. Everyone have a wonderful day. New polling from Abacus Data. If a federal election were held today, the Liberals could lose half of their seats. Uh, according to this new poll, uh, the bleeding just does not seem to want to stop. Tim Powers, Tim Powers is with us, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data, and here now. Tim, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am well, Scott. Yeah, this is what this is, just so people understand it. So we're using a new approach, an approach they use in Britain to do some analysis of polls we've already done. It's called multi, it is really exciting, Scott, multi-level regression. And post-stratification, it's been used in the United Kingdom in 2017, 2019, the U.S. election 2016. So it allows you to do a deeper dive. And what it does is you take nationwide polls and you focus less on the representativeness of the sample uh, for the entire population and more on collecting data about the respondents. And that data allows us to develop a model for predicting uh, with hopefully a greater degree of accuracy where people will go. So just, just the last bit on the context so people understand it, because there's some fascinating numbers in here. So what we did is we took data from four of our surveys that were conducted from September to November 5th, 2023, and they involved 8,225 respondents. So that's where this data comes from that we're about to talk about. And what is this telling us? Well, uh, get out the tissues if you're the liberals. Um, so what we saw from those four polls before we ran kind of the uh, this model was the, the conservatives were at 40, the liberals were at 26, and the NDP were at 18. When we ran the model, that held 40, 26, uh, and 19 for the uh for the for the NDP, but the most fascinating thing about this is using this projective model. And again, it's a projection model. It's about what we've the data we've collected today. But we did a seed projection, and now those things sometimes can be a bit erratic, but they're useful to talk about. So, using all of what I've just told you, um, these four national surveys, eight thousand respondents, the MRP stuff, the Conservatives would win two hundred and four seats in the new 343-seat House of Commons with the Liberals at 69. The Bloc would win 43, and the NDP 27. Greens are projected to win zero. Uh, coalition certainly isn't helping the NDP at this point. Coalition's not helping either party, it would seem, at this point. But, yeah, you do have to wonder about the NDP. Also interesting in there, Scott, so one of the polls, the last poll that we did um, that uh, touches a little bit on this, factored in the impact of the so-called carve-out for home heating oil in Atlantic mm -hmm. Canada. No, uh, no impact at all so far for that. The Liberals are still behind 
in Atlantic Canada, which is a region, as you and I have often discussed, that they uh, have always done well. And even when Michael Ignatius was their leader in 2011 and they were uh, finished third behind the NDP and the Conservatives. Also, in our last poll, uh, the one done in November, the Conservatives were ahead of the Liberals in Quebec. Now, I would say two things about that. First of all, we're not a Quebec-based poll firm, so we take that with a grain of salt. However, um, I mean, our data is wrong. I just say we probably need a bigger sample size. But if that number continues to be borne out to be accurate, that's a big problem for the Liberals because their path back to power, Scott, was in maintaining a significant lead and holding on to what they have in Quebec and making up for losses elsewhere. But to do make up for those losses elsewhere, they had to hold on to Quebec. Right now in our data, they are not doing very well in Quebec. So obviously the Atlantic carbon for the carbon tax didn't help. What if, and this is speculation, but what if uh, the prime minister opened that up to the rest of the country? Do you think that would help their numbers? Maybe, but they'd have to, ch- but, but the problem with it, as I think we talked about before, is it kind of gets that as credibility, right? Whether you yeah. liked carbon pricing or didn't like carbon pricing, he kind of put that out there front and center as this is my legacy item. This is the item. This is the thing that's going to make the big difference, allowing Canada to get its greenhouse gas targets, among among other policy. Um, I, people might like it, but they may not give him any political benefit for it were he to do more carve-outs for the rest of the country. Are you not surprised that um, they don't? They seem to be surprised that the Atlantic carve out didn't work for them, and that the rest of the provinces uh, there's a backlash. Uh, are you surprised no, they didn't I'm see that coming? But I, I mean, look, I can tell you as an Atlantic Canadian, this is just something that's been argued about for months and months and months. Not this specific policy, but policies like it that mitigate. Uh, some of the cost of living crisis, uh, crisis that's happening out there because of carbon pricing and other things. But I, I, I don't think Atlantic Canadians thought, all right, if we get this, you know, we're going to fall in love with the Liberals because it's been a very long period of time where they've been arguing this. It's more like a steam release valve saying, finally, okay, what do you got for us next? I mean, we're very discerning people that way. I don't know why the Liberals didn't realize that Maybe they get results on it in the end, Scott. Uh, mm. But right now, it's not, you know, the hallelujah chorus is not being sung in the streets of St. John's, Halifax, Moncton, uh, and Charlottetown from people who are grateful that this has come forward. Election still two years away. If you're liberals, do you care? Yeah, you do. Because, look, what our data will still show is there are paths back, and a lot can happen in two years. There could be some kind of global crisis. That's another one. Uh, we've had a lot lately, to be fair, to be sure, uh, that haven't been fair. Um, but um, it's tough. It's Look, I, our pollster, my colleague, our, our, the main pollster in, in Abacus, David Coletto, has said this is the worst data he's seen for the Liberals in eight years. Hmm. And We've had five months, almost five months now, Scott, of these double-digit conservative leads over the Liberals. They, you know, if the election is in fact two years away, certainly there's time, but there's structural issues in the data. So the the loathing and dislike of of, of Justin Trudeau 
among even his own supporters or people who voted for him in 2019 and 2021 has increased. They just won those elections in 2019 and 2021. He's got to win them back or a new leader of the Liberal Party has to win them back. So I would never pronounce the Liberals dead until the sand is being thrown over the grave. And even then, mm-hmm. there'd still be movement out of the casket. But it's tough, tough, tough for them right now. And the path back is not easy. Tim Powers with us, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director Abacus Data. Their latest showing the Liberals could lose half their seats if a election was held today. Uh, seems to be taking a deep dive that's not getting any better. Uh, Tim, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. Take care, Scott. Bye. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Let's bring in Dan McTagg, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP. We've had this discussion before about getting the world off of coal. I asked uh, a Green Party leader, Elizabeth May, about this. Uh, why are we not just focusing on one sort of thing and getting it done? She said, too late for that. Um, you know, should have done that 20 years ago. And, and when I reminded her that we had spoken 20 years earlier and she had said the exact same thing. Uh, but as I'm on vacation recently and I'm going down the Rhine River, I couldn't help but notice every time I looked out the window, there was a barge load of coal going up and down the Rhine River, and it did not stop, uh, literally fueling uh, power stations and industry up and down uh, the river, as as well as um, nuclear, as well as wind, um, but nothing in between. And, I, you know, I'm just shaking my head as we are, are sort of live in Canada, uh, emitting 1.5% of the world's greenhouse gases and sitting on our natural resources while these people beg for it uh, and why we can't do more to help. Let's bring in Dan McTagg. He is with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm well. Thank you very much for having me here, Scott. Uh, Dan, again, I couldn't help but notice on this trip, that's all I saw was coal barges going up and down the Rhine River, like several, several a day. Uh, and it's not like I, you know, spent the whole time with my, my nose pressed up against the window. But again, you see nuclear, you see wind, you see other, uh, variations as well. But man, the missing link is natural gas and these people are dying for it. And it seems that we're just on another planet here and we just don't get it. Well, we're not on another planet. Our prime minister and uh, those in the uh, NDP and the Greens are definitely on another planet. They're the ones that have said there is no business case for natural gas, knowing full well every other nation is only happy to take advantage for a stupidity. Given that we are about the fifth largest uh, provable reserves of natural gas in the world, we've had two, not one, but two G7 leaders come to us saying, look, uh, is there any way you might be able to find the path towards getting us some of that uh, natural gas liquefied so that we can wean ourselves off of coal, wean ourselves off of, uh, you know, pretty dangerous geopolitical leaders like Iran, like Russia, uh, you know, uh, to a lesser extent, uh, environmental, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, laggards like China. Is there any way you can get us some of this natural gas? And our prime minister basically said, ah, no business case. Oh, but we'll get you some uh, at some point down the road, we'll get you some hydrogen. Look, they can produce their own. Uh, it's done, by the way, more efficiently, more effectively using natural gas. So there's that argument to punt it right through the end zone. But it's uh, it's just a crying shame that we have political leaders in this country who simply don't understand geopolitics, much less the world around them. And be, as a result of that, 
uh, we are going to be burning more coal. Countries like uh, Germany that refuse to keep its uh, its industry open, keep its uh, nuclear open, shut down everything under the policy of Enervind, uh, which was 20 years ago uh, for Elizabeth Mays of this world. Uh, and it was a mistake, a colossal mistake. And yet we want to repeat that here in Canada. We have to really want to, you know, drill another hole in our skulls to want to do that. But Canada, I think, under a new leadership and a new government will probably take a very different approach, and that will be very refreshing once and for all. Do you think Canadians have any idea how much coal Europe is burning? I mean, like I said, I, no. I saw barge after barge, and, and, and we're just sort of pretending like we're living in some sort of utopia over here. I mean, we have no idea what's going on in the rest of the world, as long as our hands are clean. And we uh, are one of the largest exporters of coal in the world. Um, make no mistake, the irony, of course, was not lost mm. on me, not for the Ontario audience, but for the B.C. audience, that had a premier who, you know, forced the Trans Mountain Pipeline, you and I talked about this, to go up about $32 billion bucks. Uh Once he resigns, the first thing he does is he becomes part of a, uh, a coal company. Yeah. That's, his, uh, that's, his, uh, that's his modus operandi. Then wow. he's now become ambassador to, uh, to, to Germany, the very country that is on its knees having to use rip-down windmill projects in order to make more uh, coal plants. That makes absolutely no sense. But such is the world of the greens that we live in. Fanaticism, uh, alarmism, uh, climate uh, you know, bedwetting has led us to this real significant uh, lost opportunity for Canadians. And thankfully, Canadians, through pain, through uh, lack of affordability, not being able to get a resources to market, are now paying a significant and very steep price for that. One, they're not prepared to pay, but they're prepared to show the Greens, the NDP, and the Liberals the door. Are Canadians getting it, though, Dan? Are they are they really getting it? Because it seems like we're we've just we're, we're believing this make believe world that the 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 rest of the world isn't burning coal, that they don't need our natural gas, and and that by us doing what we're doing, we're somehow helping these people like are canadians like obviously the message has worked for those that are the environmental extremists but are canadians figuring this out are they realizing that their carbon tax is really just a revenue generator <laughs> well if they're not then they're not going to make ends meet are they but ask the number of people who have now have to use food banks ask the number of people who are very concerned that they're going to, have to pay an extra 700 dollars a month on average to pay for their mortgages ask people who uh, who are going to have to pay an extra six to seven hundred dollars a year uh, in order to find rent? Uh, ask those who are looking at a ten to fifteen to twenty percent year over year increase in their food prices. Uh, for some people, disingenuously going out and saying, "Oh, that's a world phenomenon." Bull oni. Your Canadian dollar is trading for almost one hundred and forty pennies above U.S. dollar. We price everything we have in this country based on the U.S. Uh, benchmark, even if made here or not. The fact that we are seeing inflation going through the roof is in no small way connected to the fact that we as a country have said, no, we don't want to sell our, we want to be pristine about our economies. We want to play this sort of Boy Scout, Girl Guide game of saying, no, we don't want to get our, internet, our, our products to international markets. And there is a direct price to pay in terms of governments not only increasing their national debt, which is increasing and putting greater pressure on higher interest rates, it's also a main driver of inflation. So if Canadians are not getting it, no problem. You will get it when you wind up uh, uh, with hmm. the bailiff coming to your door and saying, hey, uh, you either pay up or you're on the street. 
Um, more chatter last week of the carbon tax is not helping us hit it, uh, our targets. It's not really, other than a revenue generator, it's really not proving to, to do anything. Uh, again, what sort of impact does that have? Uh, you know, again, I, I believe cli- uh, Canadians are concerned about climate. What we're concerned about is, are we rowing in the right direction? Well, if you're concerned about climate, the last thing you'd want to do is stop natural gas from getting to the rest of the world and allowing other countries to produce and burn coal. But that aside, uh, we wrote the book a long time ago, long before it was trendy and cool to talk about climate. We created natural gas plants. We created, uh, you know, hydro dams uh, not far down, down, down the road where you are, the Adam Beck uh, uh, hydro dams. We've, uh, we've done the world's first, North America's first commercial nuclear reactors. Look, I think the public is now at a point of no return, not in terms of, you know, uh, whether we get this or not. People realize that something has come off the rails in a dramatic and significant way. And if you want to make the world not just unaffordable, but a very dangerous place, by all means, betray your energy security. Throw that away. Cast it away in favor of a few folks out there who keep proselytizing this idea of green policies at the detriment and the expense of everything, including our ability to manage our a clean, more sustainable future. You haven't got the money, you ain't going to do it. You'll wind up like a lot of other countries that say to hell with it. The Indias and Chinas are saying, we're going to power our economies first. We don't care how we do it. If you don't like it, go pound sand. Dan McTagg with us, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP. Why are we not devoting more energy to getting the world off of coal to start and focus in uh, on one thing anyway? Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Hey, good to be here. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Grey Cup fever has begun in the hammer. The festivities uh, slowly uh, heating up. Uh, the Grey Cup, I understand, is now in the hammer. Uh, also, uh, Shaggy going to be at the CFL Awards uh, coming up on Thursday. That's down at uh, Niagara Falls View Casino. Uh, that's on the Thursday. So lots of cool stuff going on. And uh, don't forget, of course, uh, James Street, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, uh, the Made in the Hammer uh, Grey Cup Music Festival uh, continues thro- uh, throughout those three days as well. And then, of course, uh, ending with the big game uh, coming up on Sunday. So lots going on. And even though the game's a sellout, still lots of stuff you can get involved in and rub shoulders with uh, some of the fun and fan that is uh, fans that are coming in uh, to see the big game. And, of course, uh, obviously a bit of an upset. Uh, we were going to have, like, on Friday at the Corktown, there's going to be like a big, uh, you know, put a curse on Toronto thing. But but then uh, again, what has happened is uh, Toronto didn't didn't make it. They kind of pooped the bed. And uh, now it's Montreal, Montreal in the peg. So I, I think a lot of people are excited about that rather than Toronto. Uh, but, you know, the parties continue on as uh, per usual. Let's bring in Ryan McHugh, Manager of Tourism and Events with the City of Hamilton, and Carlisle Kahn, Acting City Manager with the City of Hamilton and here now. Uh, Carlisle and Ryan, hope you're doing well. We're doing well. Thank you for having us. All right, so I'll just throw qu- I'll just throw questions out, and you can decide who is uh, who is going to answer and, and do what. But I, I understand the Grey Cup is in Hamilton now, and that uh, unofficially festivities have started. Is that accurate? You are absolutely correct, and it's uh, it's a really big and ambitious Grey Cup festival they have planned, and uh, the Grey Cup made an appearance today at uh, at Pier Eight, and 
uh, festivities are officially kicked off, and we have quite the lineup between uh, Carrie Underwood concerts, uh, Super Crawl happening Thursday, Friday, Saturday, uh, the game itself. Um, it's really no shortage of activities and, and really things at every price point, whether you're a football fan or not, uh, plenty for people to experience. And would really encourage your listeners to visit greatcupfestival.ca to see the full listing. So I understand that the game is a sellout, but still lots of stuff going on that people can participate in. Yes, absolutely. And it was uh, nice to get the uh, participants in that game firmed up. And I got to say, um, you know, shedding a tear that the Ticats aren't in it. But, um, you know, Montreal and Winnipeg, these are two uh, fan bases that really travel well. And we're just thrilled to host them here in Hamilton. And um, in addition, as I was saying, to uh, big concerts like Carrie Underwood, at the First Ontario Centre on Friday. Uh, there's also um, 40 other musical performances at the um, Made in the Hammer uh, Street Festival. Uh, so just tons of stuff to do. Santa Claus Parade on the Saturday, uh, lots of CFL events. So just a, a action-packed week here in Hamilton. Is it any detriment that Toronto is not in it, or does that make people more interested in this neck of the woods? Yeah, well, it's uh, certainly, you know, uh, just coming uh, from an hour down the road, uh, they would travel well. But yeah. the nice thing, as you mentioned, we do have a sellout. So that's not a worry. My hope is that um, even the Argo fans come on down, hop on the GO train, come to Hamilton and just take in the festival because it really is for all the CFL fans celebrating all of Canadian football, whether you're a Ticat fan, Argo fan, Blue Bombers or Alouette. And, you know, like you said, there's so many things going on, whether it's the parade, what have you. Uh, uh, Hamilton is, is rocking that city, or is rocking that weekend no matter what, including the Grey Cup as, as all part of it. Now, let's talk about the elephant in the room. There is an HSR strike. How concerned are you about that? Uh, shuttle buses, that sort of thing. Is, is all of that being ironed out? Yeah, I'll jump um, in there. You go ahead, Carl. Um, so... While there's a strike going on, and we respect the right of the uh, Hamilton Street and Rail employees to uh, exercise their right to strike, uh, we know this is going to be a great week for the city of Hamilton. And um, you know, the Great Cup organizers and the festival organizers, they're making alternative arrangements. So whatever comes, comes. And uh, we continue to showcase the city of Hamilton for all the great things that we offer. And I think it's going to be a real exciting week. Uh, obviously, as you said, they've got the uh, award show in Niagara. Shaggy's playing at that. Carrie Underwood, uh, obviously, at First Ontario Centre. But talk a bit more about uh, what's happening on James Street with the Built and Hammer Music Fest. This this looks like it could be quite uh, a meeting point. It could be ground zero for the for the city. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you look at uh, you know what you envision a, a typical super crawl, which you know alone gets two hundred thousand people over the days. It's really um, you know, a copy and paste of that, but with a Grey Cup theme. Um, so lots of vendors, and it's very much a Christmas market. And one really, really cool feature of uh, the festival is uh, the Armory. Uh, so that's right on James Street North. Mm-hmm. Um, if you haven't been inside, I uh, really encourage you to come to the festival and duck your head in. It's just an absolutely massive, uh, massive uh, facility. And in there, they have what they call Fan Central. So if it is a little chilly, you can go in there, warm up uh, to some music. They even have an indoor flag football field. Uh, so just an incredible, uh, incredible environment down there. And uh, hopefully the weather holds up and looks like it did today, so that we have beautiful weather 
so everyone can enjoy both indoor and outdoor activities. The big game is sold out, but there is still uh, plenty of stuff going on in the city and around the downtown core to uh, lift your spirits and get you involved. Uh, The game, just a very small part of all of this. And, of course, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday on James Street, the Built in uh, Hammer Hammer, uh, Music Festival should be unbelievable. Ryan McHugh has been with us, Manager of Tourism and Events with the City of Hamilton, and Carlisle Khan, Acting City Manager, City of Hamilton. Thank you so much for the time. Good luck. It's starting to get exciting. Thank you so much. Festivities getting underway. Uh, the Grey Cup is in the hammer. And, of course, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, James Street exploding uh, with the Made in the Hammer Music Fest. All lots going on despite a sellout. Uh, but where does that leave the HSR strike uh, at the end of day five? Uh, any chance that any of this is going to get resolved before uh, the big weekend? Let's bring in Eric Tuck, President of Amalgamated Transit Union, Local 107, and here now. Eric, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Not a problem, Scott. It's my pleasure. So, Eric, any movement at all? Any chance that there might be, you know, a Hail Mary here before the weekend? Yeah, so the uh, the city actually called me about 20 minutes before their press conference uh, today to see if we uh, we had any upside to come back to the table. We told them we were more than happy to come back to the table if, in fact, they have the ability to improve their offer. Um, you know, and that conversation kind of ended at that point when they said that they really uh, could only talk about maybe changing some benefits, uh, but they weren't prepared to make any movements in terms of the uh, wages or the monetary uh, offer that they had given us uh, previously in the final offer. As you know, my members rejected that offer by 94%. Um, so unless the city is willing to move off that offer, we're more than willing to make a move on our end. Uh, but that, uh, in order to negotiate, we need two parties, uh, two willing partners. So no meeting scheduled as a result of that? Correct. Um, and the, the city has made it known that there is no more money available. Um, d- does that mean anything? Does that change anything moving forward? So it doesn't change anything for us. Uh, as I said, my members overwhelmingly rejected that final offer. Um, you know, to say that you have no money yet, we're giving, um, you know, tax exemptions to to uh, developers of $41 million in this budget. Uh, we know it was offered to the non-union staff by way of a 4% salary increase and the market adjustment up to 11%. My members have simply made it clear. They want wages to keep pace with inflation. And until the city is ready to meet that offer, uh, make that offer, we, we really can't uh, come back to the bargaining table. So it looks like this is going to go through the Grey Cup weekend. Is that your your thought, Eric? Uh, it could. Um, you know, I sensed a bit of appetite watching the uh, the conference. There was a little uh, conflict between uh, uh, Laura Fontana and the uh, city um, uh, public works manager. Uh, kind of indita- indicated there might be willingness to move on the money. Um, you know, they, they've talked about moving on benefits, but uh, there, there's there's been no clear indication they're willing to move on the money. If they're willing to have that discussion, we're ready to go back immediately. Um, if by, you know, Eric, how long does it take to turn this thing around? For example, say uh, they called you today or, uh, you know, at 530 and said, okay, we've got something here that, that looks like it's going to go. How long would it take to spin this around and actually have people uh, back at work and, and the services resuming? How long does that take? Yeah, so if we could reach a tentative agreement that we could recommend for our members, I think we could have our members back within uh, a day or two. 
So we're getting pretty close to crunch time here. If we get, you know, once you get to Thursday or Friday, there's not much you can do then. Correct. And, you know, everyone's focused on the Grey Cup, and I get that. The Grey Cup is an important thing for this city, and it's something we should be able to take pride in. Uh, and the way things are going, I don't know that we'll be able to do that. Uh, but you need to look beyond the Grey Cup. Uh, I'm getting letters from everyday uh, uh, passengers who rely on our service, many saying that, you know what, they're going to lose their jobs and they could become homeless. I think this uh, this picture needs to be um, you know, taken seriously. I know we're taking it seriously, uh, and it's actually heartbreaking for many of my members to hear this kind of stuff from, from the passengers that are coming out to support us in this fight. Uh, you know, they, they've, they've walked to our picket lines and said, look, we're here to support you, but they've, they've told us how bad it's hurting them. And I think that we need to get serious about this. Uh, Eric, what happens if the Grey Cup comes and goes and there is no agreement? Are you worried that you kind of lost that trump card or does that matter to you? So, no, it's not a matter of a trump card. There's, uh, you know, uh, the Grey Cup is one 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 event. Uh, you've got to look at the small businesses, and I've talked to many small businesses that are just getting back on their feet after COVID, uh, who are saying that this is a critical time for them. We're going into the holiday season. We know a lot of our workers are working precarious jobs at uh, the Amazon plant, for example, who has no service going in there. And their workers, uh, you know, right now they're running uh, shuttles, and I'm hearing that they've hired some buses to, to bring people in. Those are going to become targets for us. They're doing work that we normally do. We don't want to interfere with their right to keep their job, uh, but the city needs to realize we're going to fight for ours. Uh, and that's that's what the unions are, are all about. They're about fighting to protect your work and to protect your, your income. Obviously, uh, with the Grey Cup, uh, people uh, will be turning to transit if it's available. Uh, shuttle buses put in. What Do you know anything about that or, or how they'll be used or who's driving them? Does it Does it involve HSR in any way? So, yes, we have very intimate knowledge of what those uh, shuttle buses are being hired uh, that we believe the city uh, worked with the CFL as well as working with Metrolinx have, have uh, you know, through the back door hired some shuttles. Uh, let me make it very clear. We have traditionally run uh, shuttles uh, in this city for Grey Cups, previous Grey Cups. Any inner city uh, shuttling between malls, parking lots, go stations, uh, we're going to be targeting those as scabbing labor and we're going to be taking action uh what does that mean eric uh, it means just what I said. This is a labor town, and you know that. You've been around this town long enough to know that labor is serious, about, uh, especially when it comes to using scab labor, uh, and it simply won't be tolerated. So we will interfere with that, those operations. Eric Tuck with us, President, Amalgamated Transit Union, Local 107, trying to get a solution before the weekend and the Grey Cup. Uh, Eric, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too. Thank you, Scott. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Bad boys overbought! Help! Right now, in all appliances, save a fortune. That savings, big time. Who's better for appliances? Nobody! Who's better for furniture? Nobody! 
All right, we remember that. Uh, bad Boy Furniture, Bad Boy Appliances, Bad Boy the Store is filing for bankruptcy. We remember, of course, uh, uh, Blaine Lastman taking it over from his father, who uh, I, I guess eventually became mayor and such, and uh, and passed it along. And now, uh, at this point, looks like they are in uh, trouble, financial trouble. Let's bring in Bruce Winder, retail analyst and Arthur, an author rather, retail before, during, and after COVID nineteen, and here now. Bruce, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm doing well, yeah. Thanks for having me on the program. Surprised to hear about this, uh, Bruce. They seem to make it through good times, bad times, and and now uh, filing for bankruptcy. What does it all mean? Well, I think they're facing a few headwinds. I mean, if you look at the um, the large ticket retail sector, you know, you look at big durable goods like major appliances and furniture. Uh, they tend to really trend downward when interest rates are high. So that was one thing that hit them. I think also, you know, the furniture business was gangbusters during the pandemic, but you know what? People aren't buying nearly as much now. Mm. And, you know, the other thing I think is that, you know, when you think about the main purchases of furniture, which are really millennials right now, you know, I tend to think that they would gravitate more to the Ikeas of the world versus Bad Boy. Mm. So I think when you add it all up, plus some other things probably that are in the court document, you know, they just got to a point where they couldn't make any money. Uh, how do they compete, obviously, with big players like the Ikeas, like whoever? I mean, it, it seems that there were others that had a much larger footprint. Is it an uphill battle for those like Bad Boy? It is. It's really difficult because, I mean, you look at, say, you're up against Ikea, and Ikea doesn't carry major appliances, but you know what Home Depot does? Home Depot's done a great job. Yeah. Between Home Depot and, and Ikea, they're just absolutely massive, multi-billion dollar companies who buy millions of products a year at great prices, very difficult for sort of a regional player, you know, to compete with them. Um, and, uh, and, and that's kind of one of the things that probably hit them, you know, just over time, they couldn't compete with the likes of those folks. You bring up a valid point, too, here, Bruce. Uh, you know, when you think of Bad Boy, you, you kind of think of discount uh, furniture, uh, appliances and such. But what about being out of style, just not hip anymore? I think that's part of it, too. You know, I, I tend to think Bad Boy might have been a little more popular probably for boomers and Gen Xers like myself. And, uh, you know, just probably may, maybe they didn't invest enough in stores. Maybe they didn't enough invest enough in brand. And there's just, you know what, sometimes it's just the way it is. Some brands have a peak during a certain period of time, and then they sort of decline, and new brands kind of pick up the slack. So this might be just the natural evolution of one brand sort of retiring. How big were they? Um, where were they most successful? Yeah, I think at one point when they were big, they had about 40 stores. I'm not sure how many they had. Uh, I know that they were sort of, uh, I think, a bit of a smaller footprint these days. And yeah, they were known for that. They were known for for furniture, really low price sort of discount furniture. And um, you know, it's but it's hard to make a buck. There was also some duties that uh, were implemented in Canada for imports. So if you bought furniture from certain subject countries, they were uh, you slapped a big duty on them. That came out a couple of years ago. That hurt the furniture industry as well. So a bit of a perfect storm that I think they just couldn't survive through. Uh, and a, a recently constructed head office uh, along the 407, I saw. Yeah, there's a few things like that. They've done a few things. They've also uh, broke ground, I think, on another store or something. And, you know, this might have been a bit more surprise, a bit of a surprise to them. That happens sometimes. I haven't read all the court documents, but sometimes companies sort of suddenly enter, you know, the point where they need to declare bankruptcy or get into CCAA. Maybe a lender fell through. That's usually what happens is, you know, they, they have money lined up and then maybe someone gets cold feet and says, look, I can't extend these loans to you anymore. 
or there could be covenants that are broken on the loan. And, you know, that usually happens. That's, that's usually what happens when a company sort of suddenly has to put up the white flag. It's usually a lender kind of pulled the plug on them. So is that it? Will they reappear in some form? Well, it's a good question. You know, it sounds like they're going to try to, that they're going to go into uh, maybe potentially bankruptcy here. Normally what companies do when they're in bankruptcy or CCAA is they uh, renegotiate with, with uh, creditors. So, you know, if they owe someone a million bucks, they might say, look, you know, times are tough. Can we give you half a million instead? Or can we pay you the million over five years instead of two years? So you never know. They might come out of this, but it's going to be tough for them because they're facing a bit of a PR storm right now. There's a number of customers who, I guess, bought some furniture or something last week and now can't get their money back and can't get furniture. So it's made its way into mainstream media. So that might hurt their brand down the road if they try to resurface. How strong is this brand, or is it past its best before date? I, you know, obviously, um, uh, you know, 10, 20 years ago, this was quite wi- widely known in southern Ontario. Does it still carry exactly. that? I think there's people maybe my age, you know, I'm 56. People around my age and older remember it. You know, it's top of mind awareness. But if you talk to sort of the millennial folks, they, they probably wouldn't name it in their top five. Um, and I think it's just one of those situations where a brand sort of it runs its course and then sort of, you know, falls by the wayside compared to some new entrants like Wayfair or Home Depot or Ikea or whoever. Who fills the void? And is that you just, as you mentioned, even online, uh, the online atmosphere, uh, how big a part did that play in this? I think it played some part. You know, I'm not saying, I think, I think these kind of products, though, you mostly want to go into store to check out. But certainly online furniture has been somewhat of a factor. But I think, yeah, I think Ikea is positioned really well in furniture. And I think, uh, you know, the Home Depot and other folks like that are probably doing really well on the uh, major appliance side. How would you compete with somebody like a Leon's or somebody who's in the same game but much bigger? Yeah, that's sort of the other one I didn't mention. But Leon's has done pretty well. Leon's and the brick. I think Leon's owns the brick now, right? But they've done pretty well. You know, they've been able to sort of weather the storm. They're a fairly well-run company. And uh, they would be up there, too, you know, and uh, I think it would be tough. Because they've got service as well. They, they do pretty well on the service side of it. So that would uh, be a really tough game to play, right? If you're trying to hit low costs, you have to keep a low uh, operating model. And that kind of prevents you from having high service rates. Completely different game now than it was when uh, Mel started this way back when? I really think so. I think it's just one of those things. You know, he's been in the business since, I think, the mid-50s, early 1950s. And as we know, the world has just changed upside down since then. Does anybody know what the bad boy, what it all means? Uh, where did it come from? No, I, I never really, uh, I didn't know. I, I don't know where it came from. I think, I think, actually, I thought I read something today that said, I think Mel himself used that as a nickname or someone nicknamed him the bad boy. So he used that for his stores, which is kind of funny. Sort of almost like the day of uh, Honest Ed's. Yeah, that was another nostalgic name. That was quite a, uh, you know, quite a store there when that was open. That was incredible. But you know what? Things change. People uh, pass on the business. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't work. And that's just the natural evolution, I think, of retail. Unfortunately, who picks up the slack here? And is there any room for? I remember in our hometown there was like a a family-owned furniture store. Is there any room for that stuff anymore? It's tougher for the independents because, you know, you're up against the big companies who buy so much product and they buy in such high quantities, their price is astronomically lower than the mom and pops. What the mom and pops have is that sort of service side, 
they're, you know, where you know, and you know, the people there and they're yeah. in your hometown and because you like them, you buy your furniture there, but in, in a bit of a recession, it's tough to justify that. So I think, you know, it's really tough on the mom and pop. So I mostly think, you know, Leon's brick, like you mentioned, Ikea for some folks, Home Depot for major appliances too. You bring up a valid point, though. We remember during the pandemic, um, you couldn't keep that stuff on the shelves. I mean, the stores were emptying out. People were just buying stuff for their home if they could get it. Uh, but clearly that wave has passed. It has. And, you know, a lot of these markets where they did that, like consumer electronics, they kind of pulled the market forward. So they had a great 2020, maybe decent 2021, but then it just fell right after that, right? So so that's the problem now with a few industries, including consumer electronics, furniture, and others like that. Bruce Winder with us, retail analyst and author, Retail Before, During, and After COVID-19. Bad Boy is filing for bankruptcy. Bruce, thanks for the time. Be well. Yeah, anytime. Take care. Scott Radley coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is here now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. What happened to Toronto? What happened to the Argos? I, oh, thought, I remember man. reading some somewhere last week somebody said is, 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 this could be the best Toronto Argonaut team in history. This could have been the best. It could have been the best CFL <laughs> team in history. So what happened? That was... Oh man, what's a nice way? That was a steaming pile of yak they dung. Pooped the, yeah, they pooped the bed. Oh. They pooped the bed. And, and and the thing about it was, is I don't know if you remember years ago there was um, Greg Norman was winning. I think it was the Masters he was winning, and then he just started to fall apart. And it was painful to watch him. It may have been the British Open. I think it was the Masters, and it was painful to watch because you you just knew. What was coming next? Every shot was like, oh, it, it's almost, it's like watching a comedian bomb on stage. It's not funny. It's, it's awkward and <laughs> agonizing and uncomfortable. And this, you knew, you just felt after a while, like Chad Kelly, the quarterback for Toronto, who probably on Thursday is going to be named the league's most outstanding player. He, it just looked like everything he did was going to blow up in his face. It was just, it was this horrible, now not horrible feeling for Ticat fans. They probably loved watching the Argos fall apart. I'm talking personally for a guy who's a great player. You just felt like nothing was possibly going to go right that game. You just felt it. Uh, speaking of agonizing and uncomfortable, the fact that Zach is back was once a tie cat. Um, you know, here we go, uh, again about conversations we had earlier in the week, mm. who's driving the bus. Um, man, it looks good on him. Uh, you know, yes, for, he's the first CFL quarterback who will start four consecutive great cups. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah. But, but you know, if you're a, a tie cat fan, if you're a Hamilton fan, it's gotta be Far, I mean, he, he left, remember he had had a number of concussion issues and he blew mm-hmm. out his knee and, and there were questions about him. I don't think anyone saw this coming. I don't, I don't, I don't, I mean, you can blame the team, but I don't know that anybody saw this coming, but I'll tell you the even more painful one, I think for Ticat fans is the fact that Mike O'Shea, arguably yeah. the most hated <laughs> former Ticat of all time is back again and yeah. probably will win again in Hamilton. It's just, it's, it's, I mean, the Argos are not there. So there's a blessing for Ticat fans that they don't have that. Mm-hmm. But man, the, the, the fact that O'Shea, I mean, I, I, I think that this is going to be a overwhelmingly Montreal crowd, except for the fact that I think what Winnipeg is going to travel exceptionally well. I would say that if this was a regular game, 
everybody in this place is cheering for Montreal. But I think Winnipeg, I think a lot of folks are going to, anyone who's not from Winnipeg will be cheering for Montreal, but there's going to be a lot of Winnipeggers here. All right. uh, Coming up on your show tonight, uh, you got Donna Skelly in. You're talking about the stink. We've been talking about this for weeks and nobody seems to be doing anything about it. Yeah. So they're they're finally saying they're doing something about it, whereas is in you can now be penalized and fined heavily for this. Uh, I think there's a whole lot of people who are in that area who have been through this for weeks and weeks now saying, oh, well, great that this is happening now, but why couldn't this have been happening when it was a hundred degrees outside and the stink was cooking as opposed to now that it's going to be freezing. But at least it's a, seemingly it's a, it's a start. At least it seems like something. Have you been out there? Have you gone out to have a- I have not smelt it. To, to draw deeply from the, uh, (laughs) from the bouquet. Yeah. Uh, no, I have, I have not either. And I've intended to, not that I have a, you know, a burning desire to <laughs> take a big whiff of a big pile of poop. Clearly but, you do, Scott. No, but just to know what they're You're talking about. You're one of those about. guys, right? You, never mind. No, no, but uh, you know, I, it's, it's good to know what people sure, are talking about. Sure, I'll smell about. it. Oh, it's, yeah, it, that sounds like now you're a teenager doing some sort of dare game. But yeah, no, it's some I, sort of Saturday Night Live sketch here. Could you imagine though? I mean, the worst that we've had, and I don't think I, you know, it's, I'm not going to compare it, is a few years ago, we had a neighbor who he and his friends enjoyed <laughs> a little bit of the, uh, the special tobacco out in the backyard every night and the wind would always blow our direction. So we'd be sitting in the wind, window would be open. I was like, oh, he's out there again. There That's the worst. But not, oh no, that's not true. We had one time when a neighbor decided to use liquid manure on their front yard, not apparently knowing that this was going to smell to high heaven for days. Not like the dump, but I I, I feel like I have a slight taste of what they're going through. And boy, if that's anywhere close, that is not pleasant. So do you think there's any recourse for any of these people? Like, what do you think is going to happen with this? Uh, yeah, um, there's... I suppose there's always a lawsuit. We love to sue, right? There's always going to be a lawsuit from somewhere for something. I just, I'm not legal enough to, to be able to tell you if they have a chance to win such a thing. But I do, if, if, if that experience that we had with the liquid manure, which by the way is, is honestly like the worst stuff. If, if any, if you ever decide, anyone listening, if you ever think that'll perk up my front lawn, it'll perk up your front lawn. It'll make your neighbors homicidal too. If that is any indication. I understand you're not allowed to blow your septic tank onto your front lawn no, anymore, this was, though, Scott. No, they brought, they brought like a tanker truck stuff and yeah. sprayed this. And it was like, are you kidding? We're not out in the barnyard. But anyway, if that's any reflection of what the people near the dump have been putting up with for months, I'm absolutely on board with them getting some kind of something because that's horrible. Yeah, but it doesn't solve the problem. No. You know, lots of people move away, they get their money and they move away. I mean, they're talking about not building a, or pausing a school that they were building in the area. I mean, is this something that should be within the city limits here? I mean, come on. Well, that's, that, that's a very valid question. I mean, how do you undo it now? Do you dig yeah. up all the stuff and move it? I mean, you can't. You get your buddy with a truck, you pump her out. You, you Free fertilizer for everyone. Let's just hope that nothing ever catches fire because could you imagine the smell if it ever started to burn? I mean, holy moly, let's, let's just. I'm thinking of Hagersville here. Well, yeah, that <laughs> same thought crossed my mind. I didn't want to say it out loud because I don't want to offer any in, in, sort of suggestions, but no, it's, uh, it's just, it's, 
it's a horrible thing when you've spent your money on a house, yeah. when you've invested your life savings in a property that you can't pick up and move yeah. and now you're stuck. Cause who in the world is going to buy a house when you go for an open house and that's what you smell? Well, only people like you that want to smell it. No, I didn't say I wanted to smell it. I was yeah, you're like, sympathetically. You kind of think it's cool. Okay, you're right. You want to hang? I'm big. I'm big into the sniffing of that stuff. No, that's that's just weird. Uh, no, it's I, I do I do want to feel sympathy for them and know what they're talking about. But it's I'm sure they can explain it just nicely without me having to go out there and draw deeply. I'd quit while you're ahead. Um, <laughs> but he'll you. continue after six o'clock and see what else he can get into. Uh, thank you, Scott. Have a great show. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.